Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. All right, everyone. Welcome to our food delivery show. Here's what you're going to hear today. First part is going to be about third delivery party apps, Grubhub, uh, Uber Eats, DoorDash. I have actually websites that are going to give you codes that are going to save you uh, money, and the promo codes have been verified. What is connected to food delivery? Chinese and pizza are probably the two most popular food delivery services. So we do very well with our fun fact show. So we got a lot of fun facts about pizza, fun facts about uh, Chinese. And then 45 minutes into the show, we're going to give you a very great detailed information about soul food. And that is from our culinary expert and food historian, Gene Bloom. He will be talking about the history and, uh, and uh, of soul food. So if you're a soul food fan, stick around 45 minutes in. Let's start this awesome episode with our food photo journalist, Amaris Pollock. Start talking about some of your favorite things from the list. Uh, you, you're talking about Chinese food, right? Yeah, I have uh, Chinese food here, which is, you know, everybody knows a Christmas story and, you know, th- one of the big scenes in the movie is them sitting down around the table having Chinese food. Um, so one of my first facts is actually that Christmas is the most popular day for Americans to eat Chinese food. Hmm. What do you think about that? Matt Maritea, Sporting Chance Podcast. What do you think? Um, I think that that is a, a big takeout day for a certain population. Maybe the people who really enjoyed our Hanukkah show. Our Hanukkah show is a home run. (laughs) PhillyRestaurantReviews.com food radio show section. Hanukkah show is almost in our top ten of all time. Uh, Go ahead, Amherst. Keep going with pizza. Fun facts. Pizza. I do not have the pizza ones. Oh, uh, Chinese. I'm sorry. (laughs) But I will say that uh, if you want good fortune, you can eat Chinese food. And that fortune cookies were originally... Uh, thank you notes inside and not fortunes. How about, th- oh, okay. So it was a thank you note for going to the restaurant. Yes. So the fortune cookie didn't always have fortune. The fortunes, yeah. Which it maybe explains the reason why some of the fortunes that come out are a little off. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just interject before we go around the table. I did promise our listeners that I would give you some tips on websites that uh, actually verify the third-party delivery service codes. Uh, There is a local delivery app. It is called Jizu, G-E-S-O-O. And that is a delivery app that focuses on local restaurants. Apple Card, uh, the Apple Card people, they actually partner with Uber Eats. Uh, So uh, we also have a app called Food Delivery Guru, and that is an app that will help you find coupon codes for the third delivery party apps, such as Grubhub, Uber Eats, and I also have a website that we're going to let the uh, co-host continue so I can find the website, but there's actually a website that will verify the codes so that, yeah, you know how you go online now, 80,000 of them are no good. This website actually verifies the codes. So continue, Amherst, so and things, I'll find that. So things like caviar, 
uh, Uber Eats, Grubhub. And DoorDash. And DoorDash, okay. And they have coupon codes. You know how you're checking out and it always says put in the code. 90, 000, 99% of the websites that give you that code, they're not good. It's no good. Yeah. I have a website here written down somewhere. <laughs> Uh, that that actually verifies the codes before they put them on the website. So continue, Amherst, and we'll, I'll find that uh, website. Well, my next two facts are related to some of the popular dishes in Chinese food. Nice. Um, Panda Express, the chef invented orange chicken. There was a chef at Panda Express that or, um, invented the orange chicken, which I do know is a popular food item um, because it combines that citrus, so the natural acids, your fats, which, you know, obviously you're going to get that from the sesame oil and also the food itself. <laughs> so basically, uh, I, I saw General Cho's chicken. Yes, uh, that so is actually, chicken mm-hmm. is actually an American and Crab Rangoon is actually an American. Now you're telling me that Panda Express had a chef. That invented orange chicken, so that's pretty interesting. Well, whether or not the there was a Taiwan because the General Tso's chicken was actually a Thai, Taiwanese chef, okay, um, and that was invented in the 1950s. How about that? So yeah, and crab rangoo was created in the 1940s. Nice. So th- those are some long-running favorites. Nice, Matt Marite, go ahead, buddy. Well, I mean, jumping in, even in, and I, I am not Gene Bloom. <laughs> so I, I'm not necessarily the food historian, but what, even uh, like uh, Amherst was just saying with the General Tso's, the difference between, say, something developed in Taiwan and China is part of it is cultural. Part of it is just, uh, you know, from that split, those sort of two countries and cultures would end up making, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, communism and things like that. It's a very interesting Food history, uh, especially if you want to take a look at that dish in particular, uh, because of all the implications between, you know, what is the difference between Taiwan and China? And, you know, uh, when do they start to diverge? How Chinese is something that's Taiwanese? It's it's a really interesting little question and sort of snapshot of the whole separation between those two countries. But actually, since we're talking about Chinese and we're talking about saving money, of all the things on the menu, what do you think has the highest markup? Oh, I don't know. The highest markup? Yes. The on, most profit. On, on chi- Chinese food? Yes. Huh. Um, I almost want to say one of the soups because I feel like soup is an easy, an easy meal to make, low cost. Um, so I would say the soup would be. It is not one of the soups, but it's actually the ribs. Really? Yes. Those Cantonese-style spare ribs that you get. Oh, how about yeah. that? That's probably going to be one of your biggest markups on the whole menu. So they make the most profit off yes. that. Yes. How yeah. about that? That's interesting. I mean, ribs are always delicious. They are. They are. <laughs> um, but uh, you wanted to talk about, uh, you brought up the wonton soups. Uh, specifically, wonton soup and pork dishes in Chinese restaurants Oftentimes, they're going to actually going to end up with food coloring in them. Really? Yeah. Have you ever wondered that, though? There's pork. It's so red. It's a weird red, right? Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Part of that is just from they, they add just a little bit of food coloring because it, it wouldn't look appetizing otherwise just because of how they make it. And 
uh, well, it's weird that it comes out that way. But that is interesting. Just the Asian culture in general, they the the way things are presented is a big deal for them, which is why fruits, vegetables, they actually you know create like fruits and they'll put them into a container so that the fruit will grow in a specific way so it's more presentable. So it doesn't surprise me that they would dye something to make it more appealing. But how many of the folks at home have said to yourself, that is a weird color for that pork? I mean, <laughs> it is a weird red. Yeah, so that's interesting, Matt. Yeah, and uh, let's see. When we're talking about... Uh, what is also sort of become synonymous with Chinese food, right? The It's not necessarily a spice or a, it's more like, I guess, a flavoring additive. Soy sauce? Not soy sauce, but MSG. Oh, yes. Chinese food is almost impossible to make without MSG. And that's the point uh, I read online is that people are asking for no MSG. It's, it's close to impossible because yeah. the sauces have MSG. Yeah. That's what I read. All of you, uh, everything, uh, every sauce that you can think of, that's really where the MSG is. So if you want to say maybe light sauce, that's a little way that you can save. It'll on lessen your, it. Yeah, yeah. You can save on your MSG consumption, but you're already getting the Chinese food. Just just enjoy it. Yeah. Just, sure. that That's my philosophy. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Or low sodium soy sauce. That would also help. So Helps lower. a little bit. Low sodium. Ah, I don't feel like it tastes as good. I feel like I don't think it to does. make yeah. something taste good, you have to add in the fats and add in the salt. I, I'm sorry. I will give a shout out to Mrs. Dash because Mrs. Dash has a pretty good no salt seasoning. So I'll give them a shout out. If they want to sponsor the show, please email. Yeah. But they do have a good, uh, no, they have no sodium in their seasoning. Now, one of the things that uh, it's maybe sort of an insider trick of the trade that a lot of people recommend when you go to a Chinese restaurant is get the Mongolian dishes. Yeah. A lot of people say the Mongolian dishes are actually better and maybe a little more authentic. Have you heard of that? I have heard of that. No, I haven't heard of that. And and now I want to try some Mongolian dishes. But it's interesting because people say... That Mongolian dishes are actually the go-to on a lot of Chinese menus. So that's a, that's a good point, Matt. Yeah, I know Mongolian beef is usually one of my favorites. And it's, I mean, it's so simple. You have the beef, and it comes with the sauce, and there's maybe the pea pods, maybe some onions. It's very straightforward. That is interesting. You know what one of my oops, favorite dishes? I know, I knocked in the mic. You just knocked into the mic. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a... I, <laughs> Well, I used to think I was Italian. Apparently, I'm not. But um, I talk with my hands, so I knock the mic. <laughs> but one of my favorite Chinese food dishes is um, those big fat noodles. Um, oh, what is it called? It's not. It's not lo mein. It's not. May, I think it's May Fun. Um, uh, oh, okay. okay. I yeah, think that's it. It's really they're really fat noodles, um, and it has curry and chicken in it and onions. That is bar none one of my favorite dishes. And I'm glad you guys are talking about Chinese food because I just found this: uh, the food delivery apps in China is a 52 billion dollar industry. There are 650 million users of third-party apps for food delivery in China. That's a lot of people. Uh, 
That is crazy. But go ahead, guys. Do you have any facts that are uh, pizza-related, Matt? I, I do have a couple pizza facts here. Okay, I have my little pizza minutes. sheet. We got a few minutes. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> um, as it is January, a lot of people are thinking a little more health-consciously. Did you know that eating pizza once a week can reduce your chances of esophageal cancer? I'll tell you what, let's order some pizza. I was going to say, that sounds like a good excuse. <laughs> it's now health food, right? <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, I guess there's something about the grease, uh, the way it coats your throat. Um, it actually helps reduce your odds. So, yeah. I wonder if it's if the if it is the oil if it's that the oil reduces the acidity like because your your gastric juices sorry um, are are your bile is is acidic and obviously tomato you know pasta sauce and and whatnot would be mm-hmm. so I guess maybe we are doing a good thing by ordering Chinese food which is kind of fatty and oily and pizza which has the oil yeah I don't know. And then, I mean, if you get a white pizza, then you're taking the acidity from the tomato sauce out completely. Mm-hmm. And it's- and then adding maybe a little extra garlic. Garlic is fantastic for it. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> and let's talk about this. 60% of people in the United States say that they order delivery or takeout once a week. It's more than half the population. Uh, 70%, this is a fact I want all our restaurant owners to listen to, 70% of the people that use third-party apps such as Grubhub and DoorDash said that if they had an online service offered by their restaurant, they would go to the restaurant instead. So that is a very business-savvy fact uh, that 7 out of 10 people said, hey, if my local restaurant had an online ordering system, I probably would order from there. 60% of restaurant owners say that offering online delivery, meaning Grubhub and DoorDash, has increased sales. That's only 6 out of 10, which I thought was low. What do you think? Well, I mean, I know just from it's more of an anecdotal example, but like when we're uh, at, at Zed's, we're yeah. doing a canning day or we're having a brew day, uh, you know, we my boss typically orders lunch for everybody and you know we always typically prefer uh the restaurants that have their own online ordering systems especially with uh delivery because it's you know that much easier if you don't have to take the 10 15 minutes out of your day to drive over pick up the food and come back right so i mean and just figuring out oh who has delivery and who doesn't have delivery has gotten us into a pretty solid I mean, routine with, right. you know, whether it's, you know, somewhere like a Pancheros that has, you know, it just, it has the delivery options, you know, right there uh, on the app or maybe someplace like a Pat Select, you know, it just having that set up uh, it increases our likelihood of ordering there. So you guys don't do DoorDash or any of that? Not typically. Uh, how about you know, that? We, we that. try to avoid it whenever we can. Right. I mean, sometimes you know we get the, the we get the Grubhub discount cards, or we have things like that. So we. But Matt yeah. is actually proving my point that mm-hmm. seven out of ten people that were surveyed, yeah, said that they would actually go to the restaurant's website in order. So you just proved that whole yeah. point. Let's take a break. We'll be back. Food delivery show.
You can now listen to all of our past Dining on a Dime podcast. Plus, see over 600 restaurant reviews with photos by going to www.phillyrestaurantreviews.com. All right, we're back. Food delivery show. This show is all about information to help you save money on third-party delivery services, but we also talk are talking about popular food delivery cuisines, such as pizza and Chinese. We have a lot of fun facts about that. Uh, let's continue with Amaris Pollock, food photojournalist. Let's talk about some fun facts about Chinese food. Um, okay, so I love anything that is handheld and easy to eat. So egg rolls were likely invented in New York in 1930s. Uh, you would... I would a- I'm actually interested in this. So spring rolls were already in China. Evidently, in New York, in 1930s, they invented <laughs> the egg roll. Is that correct? Well, that's what you, you know, your research that? has said. How and about that? Yeah, that is interesting. It's, it's also interesting that we took... In America, we... W- supersized it like everything else (laughs) and we went from a spring roll which is much much smaller to the egg roll which is a larger you know vehicle basically that is self-contained to eat something absolutely delicious that's actually a smart point so we basically fattened up the spring roll (laughs) (laughs) in the 1930s go ahead (laughs) emers did you um Ah. worry i know i stopped i caught myself (laughs) (laughs) listen to that to our listeners i did catch myself scott in idaho she did that for you yeah Yeah. i caught myself and stopped it American Chinese takeout containers were invented in Chicago in 1980s. And now think about that. The the containers you all use for Chinese takeout, the plastic containers for the quart of wontons or the quart of uh, rice and all that, that was invented in the 1980s. But I will tell you, Uh, that doesn't exist in China. That's what I thought was the most interesting. There are no containers like that in China. So that's an American ref- thing. So they are referencing the plastic ones and not the paper ones. No, the plastic ones that you normally get when you mm-hmm. order a, a quart of wonton. Or, I'm sorry, I keep saying Pines wonton. Quart. Yeah. A quart of fried rice. That container is actually exclusive to America. Because I've always ordered that and get it in the the you know cardboard kind of container. Which fun fact that's not written anywhere. <laughs> you can actually disassemble that and use that as a plate. Oh, I didn't. I don't know if that. you knew that or not, but that's you can, actually, that's awesome. Yeah, didn't know that. Take that metal bar out and disassemble it. It actually folds out to be a, uh, a self-contained plate. How about that? Which is an interesting fact. Um, <clears throat> the broccoli used in American Chinese uh, restaurants is not available in China, which I don't. And what they meant was that there's more of a stem to the broccoli in China. It's not the same broccoli you get here. So when you go to an American Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. and you get a beef and broccoli, that form of broccoli is not what they use in China. Hmm. So that's what they were talking about. I mean... It's more of a leafier broccoli in China. So it has all leafier. the leaves. Yeah, because... Oh, can I... Let me just interject this point because yeah. I didn't... I stu- should have started the show saying this. Uh, most of your menu at an American Chinese restaurant is not non-existent in China. Uh, what happened was when they brought it over after the gold rush in San Francisco, uh, th- most of your 
the way they make the food actually had to correspond to the neighborhood they were in. So most, if you were to take an authentic a person born in China uh, who is 20 years old, never came to America, and took them to a Chinese restaurant in America, they would have no idea what most of the stuff is. Yeah, and I mean, there are so many different regions in China. Yes. The, the fact is their flavors are so different. Like, uh, say, uh, when you hear Sichuan style, right? right. That is going to be something that we're sort of really tied into the Sichuan peppercorn. And a lot of that food in that style is going to have a lot more kick to it, a lot more exactly. heat to it. That's right? a good point. So if you're looking, you know, if you have your favorite takeout spots or you're looking to tr- shake things up, you want a little more kick, look for Sichuan in yeah. front of that dish. That's a good point. Yes. That's actually a great point. Go ahead, Amherst. Will you keep interrupting Amherst? Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, that's fine because obviously there's more to add to my little fun facts. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to jump off of your add, add heat to everything. Um, not related to a Chinese, uh, any kind of Chinese food restaurant that's here, but Asian related. Um Indonesian restaurants, you can actually, while you're ordering food, choose how hot you want it to be. Uh, I would recommend actually calling the restaurant and ordering the food, uh, but you can actually opt to have it spiced mildly, medium, hot, you know, it's whatever your liking is. So I know that there's a lot of people out there that eat food and, you know, you have people who are polarized, people who can't stand the spicy heat, and then people who are like, Bring it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I found that at a lot of Thai restaurants as well. Yes. Right. They, I, I had, there's one right by me, um, Ban Thai. They have the one through five scale. I love that place, right? by the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wish they would invent like a three and a half because I think that's right where I am. Depend, <laughs> like depending on what I have, the four is just a little too much. Mm. And it's, you know, like oh, massage my temples. I got to get through this. But sometimes the three lets me down, so I wish there was like a three and a half. That's a good point, though. I and uh, green curry, by the way, I love green curry. That's a mm-hmm. super spicy one, um, but polarized. I also love Penang. Penang is like a, a more mild, but still spicy, but more mildly um, heat with less heat. Nice. And let me interject this because uh, this show is also talking about third parties mm-hmm. uh, delivery. Uh, the restaurant owners were surveyed, and they said that offering third-party delivery, such as Grubhub, for example, uh, only increased sales 10 to 20%. Hmm. And I think the big debate we're having is the fees yeah. that they charge the restaurants. And some of the restaurants are saying, hey, man, I'll make my own delivery online. And like I said, this show does not advocate. We are a restaurant show. We're a food show. We kind of agree with the restaurant industry on this. Uh, but just so you know, they did a survey and it said they only increased sales by 10 to 20%. So uh, my suggestion would be, Hey, make my own website. Uh, let's offer delivery from my own restaurant through my own re- uh, website. Yeah. So go ahead. No, that is definitely smart. As I said, um, I actually go old school when I order food. I, I would prefer – I'll look on the app to see what there is, you know, for me to order. But I will call the place and order food and pay for it, you know, over the phone because I I do like supporting the restaurant itself. And 
as you had mentioned, it's not going to give money to a third party. Right. And the third parties, well, I think Pennsylvania passed a law, though, that you can only get a certain amount. I think they capped 30%. it. 30%. Yes. But it's still a lot. That is. Yeah. You know, and I just had a restaurant owner tell me two weeks ago, he's like, is it worth it? I mean, you're making what on every hundred dollars? You know what I mean? He's questioning whether he should keep the, even though it's increasing 10 percent or 20, but he's actually questioning, hey, do we really even want to continue doing this or should we make our own delivery? So that's the that's the debate going on. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, you know, it's a thing for these people who are going to be the delivery drivers too, right? right? Where Are you going to make more money just working for a restaurant itself or are you going to make more money, you know, doing the, you know, Grubhub Uber Eats style thing? And right? I'll tell you what, let's get your input. Dining on a dime, yahoo.com. Let's let's see what everyone thinks. Uh, but the restaurant industry's perspective is these fees are outrageous. I actually can put input um, to do you make money? I, I don't know from the restaurant's perspective, but I will say that uh, I I do drive for Uber, Uber and I tried out Uber Eats and absolutely did not like it. Okay. Um, you do not make money as a delivery person. So all of that money that you're paying to that app to have that food is not, deli- going, to the is not going to the delivery driver. It is literally going to Uber apps. And let's let our listeners. So it's mostly m- uh, what you would be making would be mostly based on tips then. Yes. Okay. How about so that? one of our facts here. <laughs> good. <sighs> I was able to stumble myself nicely into that. Yeah. Good segue. Says. Good job. Uh, drivers, after being polled, say that women tip better than men. I believe it. I believe that. I'm maybe. And I have a couple delivery people that have delivered to me that agree. <laughs> I mean, we are very caring people. <laughs> so we see you all bundled up and delivering our food, and we're like, oh, here you go. Thank you for feeding us. Go ahead. <laughs> So, uh, Matt, off of all of the pizza information that you have, what is something that is popular? Uh, well, uh, if we want to talk about popularity, the size of a pizza, what would you imagine to be the, the most popular option? Of size? Yes. <laughs> Bigger is better for me. I, I, I would think family size, but go ahead, Matt. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right along the lines of what we're thinking. The most popular pizza order is that large, that 14-incher. Oh, how about that? The one where you're going to get the, you know, eight slices, but they're going to be very healthy slices. <laughs> the one where it's almost a double slice. Like, if I can fill up on one, maybe two slices, I'm good. Because then you save the rest of that pizza for, you know, a rainy day or... Yeah, next morning. Yeah, or the next morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of the next morning, a poll was released. 36% of people believe that pizza is a perfect breakfast dish. How about that? 34 out of 10 almost. I mean, I do love it, but I love a plain pizza for the next day. Like, not the meat, not anything else. I like picking up a plain piece of cheese pizza, you know, and, and having that for breakfast. Mm. How about that? I don't think I can eat a piece of pizza before p.m. <laughs> I, I'm not an a.m. pizza guy unless it's Well, you're very early, traditional. Unless it's early. I'll yeah. tell you what. Yeah. Let's, we got two minutes in the segment. <laughs> Let me go through some of these stats because you, you did a good job giving stats. Thank you. 
2001, Papa John's was one of the first to offer online pizza ordering. And that was in just in 2001. I thought that was recent. 2021, Papa John's comes out with stuffed crust, finally. <laughs> in 2002, Safeway began online grocery delivery. Uh, Grubhub, here's an interesting thing. Grubhub was founded in 2004 by two web developers for the purpose, because they were tired of having paper menus. So it actually was never intended in the beginning. To be a delivery, it was just they retired at carrying around paper menus, yeah. so they said, let's make it digital. Uh, Slice launches in 2009. A survey said that 72% of people order delivery because they just don't want to leave the house. <laughs> and 46%, which is a low number, actually, uh, order delivery to avoid bad weather, which I would have thought what those numbers would be re reversed. And that actually factors into one of our pizza facts. Most pizza is actually ordered during the weather segment of the local news. Oh, wow. That's... I don't know how they <laughs> figured that out. How about that? Yep. That is that is some massive uh, tracking. That is awesome. And let's keep going with these facts, then we're going to get a break, and then you guys will take over. Uber Eats is the overall most widespread delivery app. So I didn't think that. I thought it was DoorDash. DoorDash is currently the most popular food delivery app in the United States. Here's what you guys need to hold on to your chairs at home. The revenue for third-party delivery services went from $8.6 billion in 2015 to $26.5 billion in 2020. 8.6 to $26.5 billion. Uh, the users have gone from 66 million in 2015 to 111 million, which is almost double in 2020. Uh, there are only, here's the neat thing. What do you think's going on overseas in the pond, over the pond, Matt? Uh, there are only 24.8 million users of third-party apps in the United Kingdom, London. And we're having 111 in the USA. Well, I think... <laughs> London's much more walkable. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, that's I think a that's point. a huge factor. All right. When we come back, we're going to do five more minutes of fun facts, and then Amherst Pollock is going to have a little segment of her own. Uh, let's go to break. You can find the Dining on a Dime podcast on social media. On Facebook, Dining on a Dime, the number one. On Twitter, at Dining on a Dime, the number one. And on Instagram, KJW1972. Please subscribe to our show. We are available on all podcast platforms, including iHeartRadio and Spotify. All right, we are back. For the first five minutes of this segment, me and Matt are going to bounce it back and forth. I'll do five, he'll do five. Five minutes into the segment, Amherst Pollock is going to take over with some budget tips. Uh, let's, let me start. Uh, here we go. Canton Restaurant was the first Chinese restaurant to open in America. It was opened in San Francisco in 1849. Pekin Noodle Parlor is longest open Chinese restaurant. It's in Butte, Montana, and it is over 100 years old. Who would have thought the oldest Chinese restaurant would be in Butte, Montana? American Chinese takeout containers are also not available in China. Uh, China. We said that. Seinfeld, the... Uh, TV sitcom did a very popular episode with the entire episode 
filmed from a Chinese restaurant. That was a great episode, by the way. Ingredients of American Chinese food is very rarely found in China. Uh, one more thing about food delivery. Chicken is now most popular food to be delivered in America. Did you know that? So the chicken sandwich, I guess Popeye's, etc., is the most ordered uh, food it, it, on DoorDash, is what I read. Matt, five, let's bounce five fun facts, and then in a few minutes we'll be going to Amherst. You know, they never got their table in that <laughs> episode. <laughs> That's a great episode. That still though. kills me. That's great. Go yes. ahead, Matt. So we were talking about Chinese food. Um, Crab Rangoon, right, we said was invented in America. Also was the term chop suey. Oh, how about that? Yeah, chop suey is an Americanized term for leftovers. How about that? And for you System of a Down fans, a fantastic song. (laughs) Um, But Chinese food has always been popular in America since its outset in, you know, the mid-1800s. But – it rose to that number one spot, the most popular food in the country, in the 1980s. Okay, Chinese so the popularity to, began yes. in the 80s, but it's been around since the 1800s. Yeah, it really ascended, and that's when it started to get towards the top of the food chain there. Um, yeah. Uh, talking a little bit more about some of our pizza stuff. Uh, there is a yearly expo. For pizza in Las Vegas. That's how huge pizza is. I would but love now, to go to that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it, it's probably great. Well, we have a pizza expo in our own right. Yes. The uh, Pizza Delphia. Yeah. Yeah. How about so, that? So, you know, if you, if you are looking for that, I would say when things start up again, yeah. look for Pizza Delphia. Yeah. This, this time around, they did it sort of as a takeout. Pass where you actually bought the pass and you got takeout from like five different restaurants, uh, restaurants, and then they did that over the course of I think a month or two, different restaurants, different weeks. It was it, it was, was over a couple yeah. of weeks. Not mo- I don't think that, that it was over a couple of months, but yeah, it definitely was an interest. Did you participate, Matt? No, it's too hard for me to get pizza over <laughs> back and forth <laughs> over the bridge. Uh, I'll tell you what, we still got 10 pages of notes, but Amherst is going to finish off the segment. She has some written stuff about budgeting, right? It's No, it's not actually uh, so much about budgeting, but I am going to take a more of a serious turn um, because I uh, I looked up some information because I it, it's a thing that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I used to run a soup kitchen for six years. And for me, I know I look at, you know, the pandemic and what's happened in to everyone's lives and how people kind of are struggling to get food on their table. And I wanted to put a little bit of a focus on, you know, if you are struggling or if you know somebody who's struggling, you know, here are some options for you to look up to put that food on your table because we are a foodie show and we like to eat. So why not offer up some different options for that? And I I just wanted to open up, too, with a quote that I had seen from the Philadelphia city rep, uh, Sheila, Sheila Hess and she put a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that said, I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. Um, I That resonated with what I was going to talk about because I do believe that everybody should have three meals a day. 
And I know that our government is doing things in order to try to help out because they have, you know, for children and uh, specifically, they have the meals that they're offering pre like before school starts. You know, um, I know everybody's doing online learning still, I think. So parents can drive by their school, you know, district and pick up meals for their children to make sure that their children eat. Um, We need to feed our children because they have to feed their bodies. Uh, And I know that the stimulus check, you know, the first one was 2000. The second one is 600. And I think they're trying to pass the 1400, right? First one was 1200. Oh, 1200. Sorry. Uh, I would know if I got two grand. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't actually get the stimulus check. So that's why I didn't know that off the top of my head. Yeah. (laughs) But um, so I'm just looking at that going, okay. We here in the U.S. are, you know, struggling. And I know across the the globe, they're actually giving, that's where the 2000 came from. They're actually giving their citizens 2000 per month um, to, to help support them during this, the shutdowns and whatnot. So here in the U.S., um, we have things like food pantries and we have um, WIC for women's in women, infants, and children, we have food for the oh sorry second harvest food bank, which is a national um, food food bank where you can apply um, to to get a certain amount of food per week, and that you know puts that supplements food that you might be lacking. Um, there was a website that I thought was very interesting called foodpantries.org. And that actually breaks down per state and then per city um, in each state where you can find food food supplies if you need it. Uh, and, it and it doesn't matter where you're from, your socioeconomic um, background. So, you know, over in New Jersey, Voorhees, which is an affluent area, they have actually a listing of several food pantries, and most of which are like your churches. Um, And, you know, obviously there is uh, SNAP, there's food stamps that you can apply for. But I just, I thought it was important for us to bring up, you know, the, the need bring up the availability of people being able to feed their families. You know, I don't have a child, you know, a child myself, but you know, if I were to, to have a child, if I were struggling, I would want to know that I could listen in. And this is for our listeners. If you need to find some way to feed your family, or if you know somebody that, that, you know, is um, having, having food insecurities, let them know. You, they can look up the, these things on Google. They can find it through at just about anywhere. But it's not something that's just in the U.S. It's global. Um, so there are global organizations that not only help out the U.S., but they also help out international um, food insecurities, too. So, you know, c- uh, companies like Food for the Hungry, there's uh, Feeding America, and like... Um, <clears throat> the Hunger Project, Bread for the World, all of those organizations help globally. Mm-hmm. I mean, like if you wanted to, especially here locally, if you want to find restaurants that you know donate food, time, money, it's so. I mean, you 
95% of you will probably listening to this through a phone. Pick up the stinking phone and just Google restaurants that donate food or restaurants that donate money. You'll be able to find a list. Like I found one right here. Uh, it's from the infatuation uh, com, And, you know, like Middle Child gives free sandwiches to hospitals across the city. Uh, you have Spot Gourmet Burgers uh, who make sure they get extra produce and supplies to make free meals for people who have lost their jobs and to feed uh, children at uh, schools. Uh, South Philly Barbacoa. Everybody should know that by now. I mean, they had a <laughs> chef's table about it. Uh, you know, they've set up pages uh, for you know people uh, who are undocumented workers. Uh, that's a huge, huge thing. A one nine hundred ice cream. They deliver pints to hospitals around the city. It's so easy to find these things, and you know, if you have the means and you have the ability, you know, uh, that's the easiest thing you can do is get yourself some food. Uh, and give to an organization who is giving back. I mean, it's... Yeah. And, you know, speaking of organizations that give back, like, if you are donating to to a place, um, like... <laughs> if I mispronounce this, please forgive me, but Heifer International, um, they in particular actually tried to set up for third world countries um, the availability of people being self-sustaining. So they actually... When you don't, I know it's, it's, it, it, it just sounds it's like fun. some type of weird cow conglomerate. It's it like, is. Okay. So that's actually part of it is they'll buy like in third world countries, they'll buy cows and give it to, um, to their citizens, teach them how to farm and keep the livestock. And, um, and that's, what I think where the name came from is, is yeah. Heifer. See, cause I'm just picturing like IHOP, but with burgers <laughs> or, or something like a Fuddruckers type thing where they have like different. Oh, because type, international. Yeah, they just I have different types of beef from <laughs> everywhere. Like here at Heifers International, we'll be able to get you a burger from anywhere in the world <laughs> from any kind of cow. <laughs> I mean, that would be nice. I would order up some Wagyu, right? Yeah. That in there. <laughs> get get yourself some nice steaks. But no, I mean, I think that it's brilliant that you know if you just take a little bit of time to do a little bit of research and you are having trouble, you can find things like magic just did um like i did earlier where you can sign up like or you know walk in and if you are in need you can you can find what you need in order to feed your family or feed yourself um because as i started out earlier you do deserve to have three meals a day and there is there are all those opportunities in order to feed yourself so okay uh, thank you. That was great. That was great. Let's give a couple of fun facts, and then we're going to go to commercial. And then after commercial, we will talk to our food historian, Gene Bloom. Uh, the average pizzeria uses 55 boxes every day. There are 251,770,000 pounds of pepperoni on, at a pizza shop per year. Think about that. Hold on. Did you say only 55 boxes? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's a lot of boxes. I feel like that's not, though, with pizzerias. Right. Well, no, that's the average. Uh, so you, you got guys putting out a thousand. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, squid is a popular pizza topping in Japan. Pizzerias purchase more than $4 billion worth of cheese per year. $4 billion. 36% of your pizza orders are for pepperoni. 94% of Americans eat pizza every regularly. 
93% of Americans have eaten pizza within the last month, such as Matt Maritain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I want to let everyone know, because we're going to go to break and talk to our food historian. Pepperoni I, is just salami with paprika. <laughs> <laughs> I found out. I found out that the cheese that you eat at your favorite places, Domino's, Pizza Hut, whatever, are bought from the same vendor, which I thought was interesting. Uh, they all use the same vendor for the cheese. I was going to ask, I'm like, of, of, out of all of our listeners, I'm curious how many of you like extra cheese? You know what we'll do? We'll do a poll on the dining, uh, at Dining on the Dime 1 on Twitter. We will ask that question, <laughs> and we'll do a poll. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, it's all about soul food. Gene Bloom. You can find Dining on a Dime every Friday at 1 p.m. on WMLD radio app and on air at 103.7 FM in New York, the voice of the Hudson Valley. All right, we are back with our food historian, culinary experts, and master chef, Gene Bloom, uh, Gene Blum, Gene, let's talk about soul food, my friend. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Absolutely. Let's talk about soul food. What a wonderful thing. For the celebration of Black History Month to talk about one of America's iconic cuisines. So, first of all, happy National Popcorn Day, one of my favorite snacks in the whole world. But oh, right. aside from that, I'm going to start with a little quote about soul food. Soul food is a personal passport to the past. It is much more about heritage than it is about hominy. And that is the absolute truth. A study of soul food or enduring soul food is really a trip through history and takes us, you know, back to the origins of a lot of great flavors and a lot of great foods. But I would be remiss if I did not do a little shout out today. Last week in the city of Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia lost an iconic soul food chef. Uh, Kevin Parker, who owned a restaurant called Miss Tootsie's, had two of them in Philadelphia, an iconic soul food chef. Um, if you would ask him, he would tell you his was the best soul food in the city of Philadelphia and the best in the world. But he would do it with such a radiant smile that you would absolutely entrust him in that. So we lost Kevin Parker last week at a young age of 57. Very tragic loss for chefs and for soul food lovers throughout. So, but before I go any further, I have to tell you a little bit about my background, because if you saw me on the street, I look a little bit more like Quaker Oats than somebody who would be knowledgeable on soul food. But many years ago, I had the opportunity to study under and work with an amazing soul food chef by the name of Delilah Winder. If you're not familiar with Delilah Winder, Delilah, uh, her mac and cheese was voted best mac and cheese in America for a number of years running by Oprah Winfrey and a number of other celebrity panels. I met Oprah in a sweet potato pie baking operation. We were baking pies for charity, and I was teaching at the time, and Oprah and I became friends, or Oprah, Delilah and I became, <laughs> Delilah and I became friends, and she approached me and said, hey, Gene, I'd like to bake pies up at your school and have your students help me, and Go on and so on and so forth. And the next thing I know, we were baking 7,200 pies in 48 hours. And Delilah was there working alongside me and really took a shine 
and we became really great friends and just a wonderful professional chef really taught me the ins and outs of genuine soul food. So what I know, I speak from the heart because I worked with her. I learned her recipes um, and just what a fabulous, fabulous person she is. So what is soul food? Well, technically speaking, all soul food is Southern, but not all Southern food is soul food. And that's a really important distinction. Soul food has its origins going back to the deep south. And if you're not, you know, versed on his, history and the deep south, deep south represents Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama, and what they call the cotton belt or sometimes the black belt. Soul food came about really in the days of the transatlantic slave trade. It's important to realize that soul food has been around for 300 plus years. We've only been calling it soul food for less than 100. The early African immigrants to our country in the slave trade, they came across and they brought with them some of their foods from Africa. And they really were given low quality and low nutritional value foods here in the States. So they really had to adapt the recipes, the few products they brought with them and other resources available to develop the dishes that we commonly refer to as soul food today. It's funny to think that when people think about soul food, they think about comfort and even decadence at times. But soul food was really born out of struggle and survival. It is not you know, anything to be celebrated in its early days, but it gave us so much great American cuisine. Soul food is really what ties black culture to its African roots when it comes to food. And in that, there are a few key ingredients that really lay the groundwork and help establish that link. So those ingredients include rice. Rice, if you don't know, is not a North American item. It came over with the crossing. It has roots in the Middle East and in Asia, and it came over. It was a very popular uh, starch and high-energy food coming out of Africa. And it really has its you know roots there coming across on the ships and then being planted back here. And as we know, we got Carolina rice out of the deal, and we got a lot of these southern rice staples that we see today. Really tied back to foods back then. We celebrate jambalaya as a soul food or as a southern food or a Cajun food. But jambalaya actually goes back to what is known as jollof in West Africa. And Papa John, which we talked about on our last episode, goes back to um, a Nigerian dish called Shana Swaki. It's very similar and really those roots are there. The other thing that's real big is okra. Whether you fry it, bake it, or stew it, okra is the key to soul cooking. And it, again, has African roots. Okra is probably from uh, Ethiopia. It is popular in the Middle East and North Africa and is used in so many ways. I have had okra as a vegetable soup thickener. I even had it as a coffee substitute one time. The actual word gumbo 
is derived from a African word called kingombo, which is the word for okra. So without okra, you're really not going to even have, you know, gumbo as we know it. The third ingredient that's really key in soul food is pork. And this is my favorite topic in the whole world to discuss because it relates to barbecue. Slaves were entrusted with preserving and butchering hogs. They were often given the worst cuts of meat. They were given, you know, the offal and they were giving, you know, the trotters and the neck meat and, you know, head meat and things like that, that the plantation owners did not want. So what they were able to do was take this meat that had kind of a tainted flavor or wasn't really that desirable and use a lot of spices and techniques that they came from Africa with them and learn to adapt and overcome and preserve these waste cuts or the, these cuts that were going to be thrown away otherwise and develop what we know today as barbecue. Part of that comes from the fact that they use a lot of chilies and they use a lot of vinegar. If anyone knows Southern barbecue is a vinegar-based sauce. It's fairly spicy. You can get some uh, mustard in it sometimes. They'll put a little honey in it sometimes to equal that out. But really, the origin of barbecue comes from the fact that the slaves were entrusted with preserving the pork for the plantations. The other thing that you can't go without is greens. Many cultures have a history of boiling leafy greens, but African countries foremost, it is the way to cook greens. There are several dishes in Ethiopia. There's one that's called agomanwat, which is an Ethiopian dish. It is as close to stewed collards as you can get, you know, outside the United States. And during slavery, the greens were often boiled with a little bit of pork fat, whatever vegetables they had on or had around, and they would boil them long, six, seven, eight hours. When they would serve the greens, they would keep the liquid. The liquid became known as what's called pot liquor. And they would then take their cornbread and dip it in the pot liquor, soak up all those juices and flavors, and eat their cornbread in that manner that ties back to a very strong um african culture of taking starches and using them to sop up juices and stocks and things like that so you know really strong tie in that aspect soul food kitchen if you've ever been to a soul food feast foods that you're going to see just about any i've had the opportunity to be at a southern church supper so just about any Southern church dinner, you're going to find chicken. It's either going to be fried or Southern or smothered. You're going to find pork. And the pork does not necessarily come in the form of a ham or a pork butt or anything like that. I mean, a smothered chop, chitlins, ham hocks. Hey, uh, Gene. Necks. Yes. Could I interrupt you for just a second and have you sort of Always. explain uh, smothered to us? Sure. So smothered is a technique usually done really heavy with peppers and onions or onions in particular, where 
it's just a slow braise, and then there's a lot of gravy, uh, oftentimes a white gravy, actually, that goes with it, but with lots of onions, and it's just a really slow cooking process. It makes it extremely tender. I mean, spoon tender. Mm-hmm. And a real nice onion and vegetable flavor that goes into that also. Nice. So I was so going to say, I think, I think it, smothered so, is it, an option from Waffle House, if I'm remembering <laughs> correctly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hey, don't knock Waffle House. <laughs> As we're getting ready to go down to the Super Bowl for a couple of weeks, we'll nice. stop at several Waffle Houses on nice. the way. So, well, as soon as you heard the word smothered, I just heard, I pictured in my mind the chicken that's smothered in that white gravy. Chicken, right. So... Chicken, um, chicken fried steak. Nice is is what you're thinking there, and yes, that's kind of that process. That's where that came from. Nice. But the original ones really weren't the breaded thing. It was a slow braise or a slow cook process. So, now were they the ones to invent pork belly? Well, pork belly, not really that much. It wasn't a, an item that. You know, was very popular in in the slave trade. I mean, his pork bellies often went on to making bacon, nice, and and that process. So what we know as a good pork belly, a braised pork belly, no, that that's kind of a we, we towards the end we could talk about some of the sub cuisines of soul food, and that could fit into the sub cuisine uh, of soul food. You know mm-hmm. that that chic or nouveau soul food you know where we cook things in duck fat and we use heirloom vegetables and we increase the price tag by double or triple okay but a couple of the other items that that you're going to see at anything fish obviously catfish is very popular down south just because it's abundant and they're large the greens cabbage greens collard greens mustard turnip and kale you know, very popular greens. And a little shout out to my daughter here who came to me about six years ago and started talking to me about the wonders of kale and that kale chips and kale and smoothies and everything like that. So for everybody who really has discovered the kale craze in the last 10 years and raves about it, welcome to a 300-year-old party. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, can I put a plug in yeah. of desserts, which is the sweet potato pie? Nice. Well, sure. And and sweet potato pie, really, I owe my soul food roots to sweet potato pie. But banana pudding is another one. And you would be remiss in talking soul food if you didn't talk about red drink. So in soul food, red is not just a color. It is a flavor. Generally in the mid-Atlantic states, red refers to strawberry, or I'm sorry, cherry, but you'll see it refer to strawberry in other places. There's really no distinct flavor for red drink. It is just a sweet red drink, but it is vital to any type of southern soul food meal is the red drink. And again, it's funny because when they talk about it with such passion, it is a color and a flavor, and it is something that has to be there. No explanation about what it really is. So the big thing that I I think that's really important to get in here is, you know, Southern food versus soul food. So Southern food is really the base of the mother cuisine of soul food. Soul food just makes it much more intense. You're going to find it sweeter, spicier, saltier. When you were talking sweet potato pie, 
banana pudding, that sweetness, the saltier, the vinegar bite that's very common, the spicy. I, I heard people talking about you know, food being spicier. A common example of that is southern food is fried chicken. A good, good soul food is fried chicken. Or if you've ever been to Nashville, get down and get the Nashville-style hot chicken. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It is a super spicy fried chicken. Hattie B's, right, Gene? Well, I'm sorry, what was that? Hattie B's is one of the most popular chicken places in Nashville. So I, yes. I, I know what you're yes, saying. Yes, I have, yes. And I, and I believe they actually have the Nashville style. Nice. You know, so it's a, a wonderful thing there. All right, Gene, uh, le- what's your most important thing you want to get across to the listeners about soul food? Then I want you to pr- uh, promote yourself. Because you are a culinary genius. The two things that I want to get away about soul food real quickly, if you are a true soul food enthusiast, sometime in your life you need to make the trip to New York City and go up to Harlem and go to a wonderful place by the name of Sylvia's. Sylvia's began in 1962 and really launched soul food in America. It is a must trip if you're a soul food enthusiast. The other thing is about soul food – When you're cooking soul food and you get to the point where, do I need more salt? Do I need more pepper? Do I need more spice? The answer is always yes. (laughs) Okay. Soul food is taking Southern cuisine and just heavy handed, making it even more wonderful by adding more flavor, more spice, more bite. And tell our listeners about Gene. Uh, (laughs) People are loving your segments. Uh, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, again, I am a avid foodie, uh, food historian. I teach classes in bourbon, in wine. Uh, I am a chef by trade. And today I do consulting and logistics work for large events. We'll be heading down to the Super Bowl in a few days, nice. getting ready to go down there. And uh, just really love anything related to food and food history and talk about you your tags where can at, we where can we reach you gene because people are loving your segment you could reach me on social media at ibfoodie2 that's i b f o o d i e 2 on facebook on instagram or on twitter you can if you have very specific food questions you can reach me at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com and i would be glad to answer any questions related to any type of cuisines another home run by gene our culinary expert food historian thank you so much gene we'll talk to you next time talk to you then thank you thank Thank you gene Gene. okay that was awesome i really enjoyed that i'm a big soul food uh, lover Uh, i want to thank gene for his contribution let's give our tags amorous pollock tags you can find me across all social media, generally speaking, A-R-Polycus, A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S. Matt Maratea. I am M-M Maratea, uh, sorry, M-M-A-R-A-T-E-A 22, Instagram, Facebook, not on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, the Sport Chance Pod uh, across both Instagram and Twitter, and as always, Last Out Media is where you'll find mostly everything i do and the host of our wonderful studio here absolutely and dining on a dime the number one on all social media platforms uh we're gonna have another awesome show next tuesday but we're gonna put out a bonus show if you're listening anywhere around the world keep in mind i'm gonna label it bonus show it's gonna be a local 
uh, Delaware County Cheesesteak episode. It'll be published this Saturday. Have a great week. At Cook Unity, they believe food is a great connector and should be ready in minutes when you are. That's why I'm introducing you to a personalized meal subscription service tailored to your dietary needs with over 150 meals to choose from per week. At Cook Unity, you can eat like you have a private chef delivering meals to your door. And if you sign up using the code A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S in all caps, you can get $30 off your first and second week's order. So sign up at cookunity.com and begin eating well without effort. Sporting Chance Podcast. Crack one open and give this podcast a chance. It is a weekly rundown of Philly sports, a dive into craft beer, and a peek at the sports memorabilia collection of Matthew Maratea, which is also me. Join me as I am a lifelong fan, a craft beer industry worker, and a sports writer as I'm trying to tie together all of my passions for give you, the listeners, a refreshing look at the world of sports and beer. You can tune in on iTunes. Uh, Anchor, Spotify, and any number of other podcasting apps. So be sure to check it out and look for it weekly, the Sporting Chance Podcast.